0: And now, I'll introduce our our guest. If what many analysts say is true, Ontario could be on the brink of one of the most dynamic and dramatic turnarounds in recent history. On the heels of record job losses, 2009 provincial budget has set out $32.5 billion for infrastructure spending and nearly $700 million for skills training. The government says this investment will preserve or create more than 300,000 jobs over the next two years. Then there's tax reform. Ontario's moving ahead with huge corporate tax cuts on investment and it's harmonizing the PST and the GST. These measures, the experts tell us, could make Ontario one of the most competitive jurisdictions for the new investment in the industrialized world. And could ultimately lead to a net of 591,000 new jobs over the next 10 years. A few weeks ago, Premier McGuinty announced a bold new Green Energy Initiative with Samsung Group of South Korea. Some will say that it's controversial for a lot of reasons, but no one is disputing that this deal and the Green Energy Act that was passed last spring stand to make Ontario a North American leader in green power generation and technology, creating as many as 50,000 jobs in the sector. High tech, high knowledge, high paying jobs are good things, and we certainly want them here in Ontario. But will we have the qualified people to fill them? Our guest today has given that question a lot of thought, He was one of five members of the Labour Market Information Advisory Panel, part of the Forum of Labour Market Ministers chaired by Don Drummond, Senior Vice President Chief Economist of the TD Financial Group. Last spring, this group tabled its report to Labour Market Ministers across the country, outlining the role that labour market information can play in helping Canada grow economically and become more efficient over the next decade. It's no surprise he was asked to participate. Dr. Rick Miner is President Emeritus of Seneca College, where he served as president from 2001 until he retired last year. With degrees in history, management from the US, he's held senior administrative and faculty positions in many Canadian institutions of higher learning, the University of New Brunswick, St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, the University of Toronto, as well as Seneca College. But Dr. Miner's work and interests transcend the academic. He is past chair of the Committee of Presidents of Ontario Colleges, and has served on the boards of the Ontario Innovation Trust, Polytechnics Canada, the Toronto Region Research Alliance, the Greater Toronto Marketing Alliance, and Seneca Corporation. He is also a member of the Millennium Scholarship Foundation. Today, he joins us to talk about the future of Ontario's labour market and what we need to do to get ready for it. Please help me welcome Dr. Rick Miner.
1: Thank you very much, John. At a time of record deficits and high unemployment, my message today is not going to be very comforting. It's like going to your doctor and having her tell you, I've got some good news and bad news. And you say, well, what's the bad news? Test results are back. You got the disease. You're going to die. What could possibly be good? you're a little healthier than most others, there may still be time for a cure. So let's start with the conclusions. We have two mega trends emerging. First, an aging population, and second, a movement from a labor to a knowledge economy. Both are widely accepted, but today will be the first time the two trends are put together because they have been looked at quite separately, which is not the case. Be prepared, the union is frightening, for unless we take some decisive action, our social fabric and economic strength is in jeopardy. The new norm will be people without jobs and jobs without people. If these two trends continue unabated, there will be hundreds of thousands of people that lack the skills to get the jobs that are available there will be 700,000 of them in the next 10 years. This, combined with our traditional unemployment rate, will put the total unemployed in excess of a million. It gets even worse. At the same time, there will be over a million job openings that will go unfilled because there's not enough skilled people to fill them. That number increases to 1.7 million by 2031. We are going to need to dramatically increase both our labor force and have a better skilled and trained labor force. Given this, the current recession actually doesn't sound that bad. The good news is the problem is solvable. The bad news is we don't have a lot of time. So let's start and talk about it. What you see here are the percentage of the Canadian population in their prime working years, 18 to 64, and what proportion of the total workforce they make up. You see that around mid to early 60s, the proportion of the population rises. Why? That's because of the baby boomers. Baby boomers started emerging in 46, 47, Give them about 20 extra years, that puts them in the mid-60s, and the population grows and grows and grows. By 2011, you see the line dropping. Why? They've reached 65, and they're moving into retirement. Those baby boomers transformed our educational systems in the 50s and 60s. New high schools, new colleges, new universities, new systems, There were just so many of them, we had to do something. We haven't heard much from them lately, but around 2011, they'll remind us of their presence. And you can see the decline goes through 2050. This is not a short-term phenomenon. So why is this happening? And what happens is because historically, participation rates vary significantly by age. You can see, and you can look in your report, Uh, early on, you have lower participation rates for youth. In the prime employment periods, the rates are quite high, 80 90%, and they start tailing off in the 50s and older. So as your population ages, if you have more people beyond 65, your average participate rate falls, and in fact, in Ontario, it'll go from an average of about 67 percent down to 61 percent. So what is the impact of this going to be when we look ahead? You well, know, the Ontario Ministry of Finance has done some projections, and this data is based on their projections. They first had to make an assumption about labor market demand, and that's your green line. They then had to make assumptions about what is going to happen to our population. So what are our demographic predictions? And they made assumptions about either a high-growth model, a medium-growth model, or a low-growth model. So if you are an advocate of the high-growth model, you believe there are going to be more immigrants, more births, and less death. If you're an advocate of the medium-growth model, you assume it's pretty well steady state. And if you believe a low growth model, you're very, very pessimistic. So when you take the population projections and you add to them the historical participation rates, you get the various color of red lines. Uh, The one closest to the green line would be high growth, then the next one medium growth, and finally the low growth model. What is important from this is regardless of which population projection you want to take, there will be a shortage of labor. That is a given. If we want to take a medium growth assumption, by roughly uh, 2021, you're gonna have a shortage of about 600,000. By 2031, you'll have a shortage of over a million. You'll still even have shortages in the high growth model. Not as high, and as you will see later, that will not solve your problem. There is a demand supply imbalance that is created by the demographic realities of an aging population and different labor force participation rates depending on age. This is not rocket science. The nice thing about demographics is that a year from now, we're all going to be a year older. We hope. (laughs) (laughs) There is another option. (laughs) So now we know there's going to be a shortage. And remember at the beginning of the speech, I said everybody wants to talk about demography and everybody wants to talk about skills, but they don't want to put them together. So let's talk about putting them together and that's the second major trend, and that is a change in our economy. We are going to be moving from a labor to a knowledge economy, and that means the type of jobs we need will change. There will be new and unheard of careers. The US, In a U.S. study, they found that roughly over a 25-year period one quarter of all jobs were new and had never existed in the previous 25 years. Totally new, it wasn't evolution, it was new. They also found in a study that about every 15 years, an old job becomes a new job, either because of increased technology, increased responsibility, increased job demands, the skills you needed in the old job become new skills you better have in the new job. So while their names may or may not change, the level of training or retraining required will. Now, let's be honest. We have never been particularly good at predicting explicitly what the new jobs are. That's the reality. And I'm not gonna be venturing into that territory. But I did want to show you some material from a futurist called Adam Gordon. He recently listed, and I'll read some of these off for those in the back. He recently listed 23 jobs that he predicted would be new jobs for 2020. Uh, body part maker, nanomechanic, space pilot, weather modification police, narrowcaster, personal brander, et cetera, et cetera, and another 13 or so others. Now, when I first read read this, I have to admit, I thought he was being a little far-fetched. And Then I read about the university in Midwest U.S. that's already growing body parts, the Chinese and the Russians doing very significant weather weather modification experiments, Uh, Virgin Airlines announcing that there will be space flights for the public in the next decade and like many of us in this room, I've been paying particularly close attention to the memory augmentation surgery. (laughs) I think that's our salvation. (laughs) So we haven't been particularly good about predicting the explicit jobs, but we have been pretty good at predicting whether they're gonna need higher levels of education. And if you look at Gordon's list, at least the ones I've shown you here, I think you'd be hard-pressed to assume that these could be easily handled by somebody with a high school credential. You're going to need some level of education beyond high school. And that's certainly been the case. There is a growing demand and need for education beyond a high school level. So my definition of the skills requirement is a very inclusive one any form of education beyond high school. It could be apprenticeship, it could be a PhD, it could be a master's program, it could be a college diploma, it could be an industry certificate, it could be a university degree. I'll accept any of them as being capable of providing advanced education and training that we will need in the future. So then the obvious question is how much? This is is an issue that many people have tried to address and I want to give you some sense of where they're coming down. A couple years ago, Human Resource and Skills Development Canada said the new jobs will require 65% 65 of the new jobs will require higher level of training. Ontario Ministry of Education pegged the number at 81. Canadian Council on Learning said no, 67. There are two B.C. studies in the last decade that put the number at 75 to 76, and there's a recent U.S. study out of the Obama administration that put it at 78. Yes, there's some range, but all predict more. So I had to make some assumptions, and in making those assumptions, I assumed very conservative estimates. I said, let's assume that for now we need the lowest number, and let's assume 25 years from now we need the highest number. I think that personally think that's defensible. May there be some variation? Yes, there may be some variation, but I think it is defensible. So now we have a chance to bring our two megatrends together. The red, you see, is the same as the labor shortage you saw on the earlier slides. The green and kind of burgundy or brown are the implications of moving to a knowledge economy. And the frightening thing you get, and this is a medium population growth, is that you end up with a whole bunch of people, that's the green line, that do not have the skills necessary to be employed. And you have even more people, the brown, burgundy line, of employers who have vacancies that can't be filled because the skills don't exist. So by 2021, we'll have a shortage of over 700,000 in labor force participation rates. And remember again, that includes people uh, in the labor force participation rate, it always includes unemployed. So we'll have over a million people in that category. We can look further ahead, 2016, we'll see that in terms of unfilled vacancies, there's 800,000, it goes to 1.3 million by 2026, 1.7 million by 2031. So we have the worst of both worlds. Significant high social cost due to increased unemployment and a sputtering economy because we don't have the skills necessary to run the economy we want. Some would say, oh, we can solve this if we only achieve our our high population projection. Partly they're right. And this is the analysis if you assume a high population. The red, again, is the difference between supply and demand. That number shrinks. So you you have less of a problem with numbers, but what you can see, you actually have more of a problem in terms of people who are unemployable because they don't have the skills necessary. So simply growing the population is not the panacea. We have a two-pronged problem. We need to both increase our labor force and to have higher levels of education and training. Be forewarned, there are no silver bullets. This is a complex and difficult problem requiring early attention and dedication. The current recession, ironically, may actually give us a little breathing room. Without change, we are destined to a world without people, people without jobs, and jobs without people. Let's briefly, and the report provides more detail, but let's briefly consider some of our policy options, both at a corporate level and a government level. Many have said increased immigration is our solution. Recent employment history questions that assumption. Stats Canada shows that for the prime employment ages, we have an 88% participation rate. Recent immigrants, those who have been in Canada five years or less, have a participation rate of 75%. It takes 10 years for an immigrant to reach a participation rate equal to the average Canadian rate. So immigration in and of itself is not the solution. We know that immigrants have had trouble because their credentials haven't been recognized, they have not had Canadian work experience, and they may have language skills that need to be enhanced. If we want immigration to be part of the solution, we have to address those issues. Another thing we can think about is looking at areas that have historically had low labor force participation rates on the assumption we could increase that. Aboriginal population would be an example. Regardless of age, the Aboriginal participation rates are at least 10% below what we would find elsewhere. If we look at peoples with disabilities, on average, they are 25% below participation rates, and depending on the disability, it can be as high as 50%. Let's go back to our participation rates. There are two other options, and there will be some controversy on these. Can we increase our youth participation rate? So why is it low? And the reason it's low is because they're in school and we want them to be in school. We know we need to increase the level of training. So we don't want to take them out in school. But can we accelerate that process? Our education system, for example, is built on an agrarian model. Let's go to school for nine months. Let's take the summer off so we can bring in the harvest. Let's go back to school. Let's take the summer off so we can bring in the harvest. We haven't done a lot of harvesting lately. But what has been replaced is, let's go to school, let's work, earn the money to pay for next year. Let's go to school, let's go to work, let's pay for next year. So trying to run the school in a longer period of time means other policies have to change. But I think we start questioning whether the way we've historically delivered education and training is the only way we can deliver. For example, a university student who decided to go to University for two of the four summers would graduate a year earlier, would be in the workforce a year earlier. Should we look for better cooperation between our post-secondary institutions? I think the answer is yes. We need to look at issues around transfer credit, transfer credit delays graduation and degree or diploma completion. Uh, colleges are enrolling more and more students who already have a university degree. Should universities and colleges be working together to create pathways that accelerate that process? For me, I think the answer is yes. In the U.S., and actually recently in Canada, there's been a call for a restatement of the three year baccalaureate degree. Should there still be four year degrees? Of course. But does a three-year degree give you some flexibility to allow you to pair that with some other learning outcomes? Probably. Last year in Ontario, 69% of our high school students graduated on time. 69% within four years. If you gave them an extra year, a year out of the workforce, 77% graduated. That's not good enough. We need to find ways to get people more involved in the process. Parents, students, employers, and governments need to understand that a high school completion is not the end. We have to change attitudes. Attitudes that recognize it's a new world, it's a new economy, it's a new workplace, and Simply completing a high school credential is not enough. The second part of our, uh, our figure here, and there's more detail in the report, is older workers. Workforce participation starts dropping at around 55 and it really tanks after 65. Can we find ways of, of handling retirement better? Right now, a lot of our retirement programs are like falling off a cliff. You're either on it or going down. Can we find ways of graduating? Can we find mentorship opportunities? Can we do things that keep the skilled members of our workforce in longer without exercising draconian measures? I think we can and I think the onus will be on industry to find ways to do that. Finally, Let's not forget about our hidden problem, the one we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about the fact that four out of 10 Canadians do not have the literacy level high enough to effectively undertake advanced education and training. Six of 10 immigrants don't have that literacy rate. We have to do something. In terms of our future, I presented you with the medium growth projection and the high growth projection. We are spot on the medium growth projection, spot on. And keep in mind that for 2031, the vast majority of Ontario's workforce has already been born and is living in this province. So you're not gonna get huge growth except potentially through immigration or interprovincial or interstate mobility. This means under a medium arrangement that by 2031, we are gonna be short 1.7 million people and still have high levels of unemployment. So from a public policy point of view, what should we do? Should we put energy on expanding our workforce or training? Of the two, I lean to training, because you want to target people who are unemployable because they don't have skills. If you can give them the skills they need, you satisfy the employer, and you pull them off the unemployment. You still need to look at growing the workforce, but I think the first option is probably the short-term better. And if Again, if you look in the report, you'll see for the first 15 years, that's the prime strategy. You go into the last uh, decade, and it switches, and growing the workforce is probably better. This type of approach will help us reduce the number of people without jobs and will strengthen our social fabric by reducing unemployment. So where do we stand? How do we stack up compared to the rest of the world? This, again, is a good news and bad news story. We don't have a lot of time. That's the bad news. Currently, our labor force participation rates in Ontario are slightly above the Canadian average. So that's more good than bad. Our educational achievement levels are slightly above the Canadian average. Again, more good news than bad. If we look south of the border, we find a very interesting event because we are far better educated than the average American. But they have higher labor growth. And what you can see, they got the same problem. They're going to have a shortage of labor, and they're going to have both groups of people who are unemployable because they don't have the skills, and groups of employers who can't find the skills they need. We have to accept that the demographic changes are coming and the increased educational requirements are necessary and this is a real situation and cannot be wished away. The implications of these two trends converging at the beginning of the speech, this is the first time that I've found where we've seen them converge and understand there is in fact a two pronged problem. Their union has the potential of actually shaking the foundation of our economy and our society. The time for action is now. Without changes, this is our future. It's not going to be a pleasant one. Millions of people without jobs, millions of jobs without people. Our economy and society is in potential jeopardy. Again, the recession might actually give us a little breathing room. But keep in mind, we're we're not alone. I can do the same table for the West, for Atlantic Canada, for most of the US states. All of North America will be facing the same conditions. The market for skilled labor will be worldwide, and it will be fierce. Employers need to understand that this is a new human resource world. The old practices won't work. The industries, the countries, the provinces, the states that understand this shift and proactively prepare for it will have a significant advantage, both economically and socially. What is Ontario going to do? That's the question our children and our grandchildren need answered. Thank you very much. I appreciate your interest. I believe we have some time for questions and I'm told there's a couple of mics around the room and uh, as long as they're not too hard, right? I'll see if I can't address them, and uh, it's a first come, first serve. So I think if you stand up or... Thank you, Dr. Miner. Very interesting presentation. I'm wondering if you could talk about productivity and how that works into the equation. Yeah. um, It really... The problem is there are many ways of solving the issue. What you have to be careful of is that you solve the problem one way and create another problem. So productivity in and of itself is not the panacea. Yes, do we want to be a more productive economy? Absolutely. Uh, Is that good for us? Absolutely. But if we're more productive without doing it in such a way that it in fact strengthens our human capacity